0: So before we uh, get started in Matthew, there's two uh, 2 side things I wanted to address. Uh, one from last week, uh, uh, someone asked me about the apocryphal writings. How come those are not in, uh, in the Bible, or how come those are not included in the canon? Um, does anyone not know what the apocryphal writings are? Okay, the apocryphal writings are about, it's about 12 books or so, that um, have been included in most Bibles for as long as they've been written. Um, the Roman Catholic Church claims they are authoritative. Uh, they they are the books that that justify things like praying for the dead, purgatory, uh, and some of the some of the weirder uh, uh, heretical beliefs of the Roman Catholic system. Um, uh, the reason why we as Protestants uh, and as Christians don't acknowledge them as authoritative or inspired is because the church throughout church history never considered them authoritative or inspired. They, uh, these are books that were written um, during, the, during the intertestamental period, most of them during the Maccabean period. Uh, you know, uh, I think two, two, three, or four of the books are the history of the Maccabees. So um, they were included in they, – they were included at the end of the codexes and the manuscripts in the same way that the book of maps is included in your Bible. But we nobody considers those, you know, ten pages of maps to be inspired or authoritative. They're helpful. So they were included for the longest time. Um, the original uh, – they never claimed to be authoritative – They they contain many um, inconsistencies and inaccuracies. The church never considered them authoritative until the Roman Catholic Church, as a response to the Protestant Reformation in the mid-1500s, started saying, no, they're authoritative. So they, they were in existence for 15 or 16 centuries before anybody claimed these are inspired. Um, so that's why that's why we don't you know they, they are um, the only ones that I think are even worth reading are maybe the Ma- the history the Maccabe- the history of the Maccabees but when you start reading Bell and the Dragon and Tobit and Judith and and Esdras, first and second Esdras, they have uh, in, in the words of Johnny um, Carson weird and wacky stuff or is that Dana Carvey but I don't know who that is but it, it's weird and wacky stuff in in these books so that's that's why we don't consider them authoritative. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is uh, as we're, you know, for those of you who even attempted to read Matthew, you know, you may have discovered it takes a little bit of time. Matthew is a little bit longer than, you know, each of the minor prophets. Uh, and several of the New Testament books are long, some are short, some are long. So what I want to advocate is the use of uh, downloading uh, an audio Bible on your iPhone uh, most people commute to work you know uh, while I was delivering parcels this week uh, I, I listened to Matthew and it took me about an hour and a half two hours so if, if you commute to work you could easily listen to it at least once maybe twice if you go on walks with your spouse you um, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a convenient way to be exposed to the material, and and you may need to do it once or twice just to become familiar with it. But doing that allows you and enables you and equips you to come into this and be prepared, so that as I'm going as I'm dissecting all the data, you have a frame of reference to connect the dots with, um, and it helps it stick a little better. So uh, most um, I mean, most Bible apps nowadays have a audio or read-to-me feature. They're free. Uh, you can even stream someone reading it to you on um, YouTube. You know, but back when my folks were still alive, my, my dad ordered like a, a 50 or 60 CD, James Earl Jones Reads the King James, which is like half-inspired because it's James Earl Jones. But um, – now it's it's free. It's free. It's convenient. It's easily accessible. So I, I strongly admonish you to take advantage of those resources. Okay. Now on to Matthew. Okay. So our uh, our frame, our grid for uh, for this series is we're gonna. Uh, Look at a general introduction looking at the title. Why is the book called what it's called? Uh, Who is the author? Who is the book written to? Uh, Understanding who wrote it and who is he writing it to uh, will help us understand uh, what's going on. We'll look at the date. When was it written? What else was going on at the time that it was written? And then uh, we'll try to outline the book so you can see the the. You know, the segments and the flow of everything. So that will be the general introduction. Then we'll move on to major themes. What, what are the things that really stick out? What's the flavor? What's the smell and the scent of the book? We'll, uh, we'll try to summarize the book in one and, if necessary, two sentences so that you, you can know what it's about in about in a succinct, concise sentence. And then we'll address some interpretive challenges. These are the things that when you read through, these are the things that you get, you know, maybe you, you, you stay up into the wee hours of the night because you can't go to sleep until you figured out what did he mean by that. And then we'll, if we have time, we will uh, open the floor up for questions. All right, so getting into the, uh, the introduction of Matthew, it's called... Uh, Matthew or according to Matthew, uh, what's interesting is all of the Gospels come to us anonymously. There's nothing in any of them that explicitly says this is written by Matthew, this is written by John or Mark or Luke. Um, uh, How do we know that Matthew wrote this first Gospel? By, By 100 to about 125 A.D., uh, so, still within the lifetime, you know, nearing the end of the lifetime of some people who have lived during the biblical events, uh, the early church fathers titled this gospel uh, according to Matthew, and the rest of the church accepted this. There has never been any substantial challenges to a Matthewan authorship. Uh, the, the Didache, which is basically the first commentary. That the early church produced, uh, the Didache, Justin Martyr, the ch- the church historian Eusebius, uh, the church fathers Origen and Papias, and many others whose names you've probably never heard, uh, all attribute general uh, genuine authorship to Matthew, to the apostle Matthew. And there's really no reason to forge Matthew's name because there are there were more prominent apostles with greater reputation greater acclaim so if you're if you're going to forge someone to try to make your document look impressive you would have chosen peter you would have chosen paul you would have chosen james or john but but matthew the tax collector so uh that's why it's called matthew now that that's let's look at matthew what what do we know about him well he was a tax collector Uh, There were two main taxes that the Roman government exacted from the people of the empire. You have the toll tax, which is basically the same as our income tax. And then you have the ground or property tax. And Roman senators, uh, Roman officials would buy from the central government uh, at, at, uh, at public auction the right to collect the toll tax in their region, in their province at a fixed rate. And they would get the right to collect taxes for five years. And whatever was collected above the, that certain rate that that the, that the central government had to get, whatever whatever the, the 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 regional governors collected above that, this is profit for the regional governor. And, uh, and 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 because the governors, you know, they have they have jobs, they have a they have a, a palace job or a you know bureaucratic uh, office job, and and they they're not going to go around collecting the taxes for the Hundreds of thousands of people in their province, and so they would collect, they would hire uh, common joes to do the actual collecting. And and guess what? The common joes, you know, are given this standard: you have to bring back this much. Whatever whatever more they collect, they get to stick in their pocket. So both the uh, the, uh, the the high ranking government officials and the guys actually going around doing the collecting, everyone in this in this scheme has this uh, motivation of self-interest to collect and exact uh, as much as possible from the hard-working common common Joe. And uh, and, and they would do this knowing that they had full support by the Roman military and the Roman government if someone has the wise idea that they're not going to pay their taxes. So uh, obviously... How do you think the people of the land felt about the Romans and 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 their taxes? So n- not only are the Romans Gentiles, they're the pagans, but they're they are these oppressive overlords of the Jews who took the Jews' money. Uh, the tax collectors then were Jews who then served the the Romans, and they were viewed by the people as traitors because they're aiding and abetting the Gentiles from uh, for taking from their fellow jews so other so that that's what matthew did the the common person hated people like matthew Uh, other than that he was a tax collector we don't really know anything about matthew's past he's rather humble about himself he's rather humble about himself he uh in, in this letter uh that is uh quite heavy with jewish themes and is written to jews and jewish christians he doesn't parade his Jewishness. He doesn't even directly uh, refer to himself or address himself. Uh, he, when he does, it's in the third person, as if he's just a minor detail. Uh, he doesn't uh, admit, admit the fact or highlight the fact that he's a landowner. Uh, he doesn't boast about his Jewishness, and he doesn't hide his former occupation as a tax collector, nor does he insist on using his Jewish name, which is Levi, he calls himself Matthew. Mark and Luke will actually, do, they'll go back and forth and they'll call him Matthew and they'll call him Levi. Matthew only calls himself as his uh, by his Greek name. So he doesn't think very highly of himself. Tradition says he, he ministered in Palestine and preached for 15 years before going out uh, to evangelize in foreign lands. So... That's who wrote the book. Who did he write the book to? Well, he wrote the book to Jews. Uh, and this is obvious because there is a strong Jewish vocabulary in the book. Uh, most of the, it, it became a long standing tradition, uh, well ingrained tradition to avoid using God's name uh, in the Jewish community. And uh, Matthew does that abundantly. Uh, he uh, the, the New Testament counterpart to Yahweh, he uses uh, God's name uh, a lo- many times. He, um, he refers to the Father in heaven 15 times uh, in heaven was this very common uh, uh, description of God's abode or his, the, the area of his reign or realm in the Old Testament. And the fact that it's he's the God who judges or who reigns in heaven, uh, demonstrates that his his realm is vastly superior and is far more expansive than the more local uh, domains of the pagan deities. So he's the Father in Heaven uh, used 15 times. He uses the kingdom the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times, and uh, he also uses uh, transliterated Aramaic terms such as raka and Corbanus. Uh, he uses uh, words that a Jew would understand, but he writes them in Greek using the Greek language so there 's a very strong Jewishness in the in the way he writes and the words that he writes and the allusions he uses uh, there's also a strong Jew, uh the the, the the Jewish theme is shown also in the genealogy that 's shown in the very beginning of the book you know when, when we read when Carl started preaching through Mark. There's no genealogy. Romans, you know, the Romans and the Gentiles have no concern. They they don't care about who was your daddy and who was his daddy and who was his daddy. Uh, they, the, the 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 Gentiles they just want you to get into the action. That's why immediately shows up so many times. But the Jews they oh they love heritage and they need you know they love that you can document you know who your ancestor is you know thirty people back. So we see Jesus' genealogy, and that actually plays into uh, demonstrating his credentials to be the king. Uh, And then there are Jewish uh, – Matthew writes with Jewish presuppositions. And what that means is he writes or he speaks or he communicates presupposing that his audience already can fill in the dots uh, when he uses – uh, when he talks about the Jews, when you compare uh, uh, the the birth narrative in two one and twenty two with with the with the parallel passages in Luke, all Matthew has to do is place uh, is is place Jesus during the reign of Herod, king of Judea, and he expects all the Jews, because they were alive at the time, or their parents were alive at the time, or they had family alive at the time, they are they can fill in the dots. Luke. Has to play, you know. Writing to Gentiles, Luke has to place the birth narrative in a much broader historical context. He mentions the reign of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and uh, uh, Tiberius and Caesar, uh, or Pontius Pilate and Herod, Philip, Licinius, the Tetrarchs, and he. Has, Luke has to explain Joseph went up to Bethlehem because he was of the line of David. To, if, if if this if that had been written to a Jew, that would be redundant. Everyone knows that. So, uh, also, when you compare uh, Matthew 15:2 with Mark 7, uh, the tradition of the elders, Matthew doesn't have to explain, but Mark does have to explain. You see, the Jews, they had all these ceremonies where they'd clean the inside of the cup and, and, and do all, you know, what they'd wash their hands. Matthew doesn't go into those details. Those are the, that's super, 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 redundant. Superfluous. Yeah. All right, when did Matthew write it? Well, uh, again, there's no exact date given in the book, but it, it's around 40 to 50 A.D. Strong, strong tradition. says Matthew was the first book written, uh, and Galatians was written approximately 50 A.D. because it had to be written before the Jerusalem Council, and the Jerusalem Council can reasonably be narrowed down to about 50 A.D. So Matthew was written... Just before that, uh, you know, in about a ten, five to ten year window, so from forty to fifty. Uh, just as a side note, the, the entire New Testament was written in Greek, um, compared to the Old Testament being written in Hebrew and some and some Aramaic. But the reason why I want to bring this uh, out, comment on this right now is because there has been a, a long-standing tradition that Matthew first wrote uh, an edition or. Uh, of his gospel in hebrew and then that one was lost and so he translated it or somebody else translated it into greek and uh, i i i know someone within the hebrew roots movement who actually despises and looks down upon the greek the corrupted greek uh transmission of the text Uh, you know the hebrew was the more inspired and um we can say with confidence that the inspired the inspired manuscript that survived and that was preserved was written in um, in Greek. This this uh, the copy that we have bears no evidence of being a translation. So it, the one we have, there may have been one written in Hebrew, uh, especially if he uh, if he was ministering in the area and they're still speaking Aramaic, he might have written one, and it might have it was probably lost. But this one was written in Greek, and it was inspired because it was preserved. All right. Now, what I've done is I've provided a, uh, uh, an outline. I think most of you guys should have one. Um, have you, has anyone uh, heard of the word chiasm? Okay. So the Jews, uh, the Hebrew mind has this literary structure called a, a chiasm, uh, where you present an argument, you present um, something you know, in a sequence, and then you, con- after you've made your point, you conclude the argument, reversing the sequence. And and everyone is actually aware of at least one chiasm, and I know that for a fact because if I say it, you you will be able to finish it. When the to- when the going gets tough. The tough get going. That That's a chiasm. Do you, do you see how the second phrase is the same content of the first phrase? It's just in reverse. So that, that's a chiasm. Matthew, being a Jew, writing to Jewish people, structures his uh, book in chiastic form. And as you look at that, at that document, um, you can see uh, all the bullet points at the top are mirrored at the bottom. And then as you go to the second section, all those points are mirrored in the second-to-last section. And then in the third section mirrors the third-to-last and so on and so forth. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the features of this chiastic structure was to have the heart or the nexus or the gut or the takeaway right in the middle, sandwiched in the middle. So you can take that home with you if you'd like. Uh, but that, that is the structure of Matthew's... letter all right so getting on to the major themes Matthew is certainly oh they all showed up okay you do not see the second the bottom part of that yet Matthew is certainly a god-centered book as I said earlier the Jews strongly resisted uh, it, by any means possible using God's name uh, it, that that was a uh, a misapplication or misinterpretation of, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, and so they, they they figured well I can't you can't be guilty of taking in vain if you just never say it at all, which that's that was never God's point, you know when, when when he when he commissions Moses and tells him to go to the children of Israel, Moses says who who shall I say sent me tell them I am sent you so God obviously did want. Israel to know who he was, what what his name was. Anyway, he uses uh, he uses God's name a lot. The first is uh, Isaiah. Uh, the first one being in one twenty three when he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And when he quotes that, God is the equivalent to the Old uh, Testament Yahweh uh, with within. Within the book, we also see a strong Trinitarian uh, uh, theme. Uh, Forty-three times, uh, God is called the Father. Uh, we see in 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Uh, same chapter, verse 48, as your, uh, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there's, quite frankly, too many to list. Uh, We see the Son used uh, 60 times as uh, some kind of Son, but uh, 11 times as the Son. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. We see in that in uh, 11.27, we see the Son being attributed deity. He is on par with the Father uh, in 21 37 to 45 when he when he alludes to uh, Isaiah 5's uh vineyard image uh, he gives this parable about the vine growers how the the landowner sends his servants and the 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 workers representing Israel which the, they they picked up on they they harass the servants and the landowner eventually sends his son thinking They'll respect my son, and they reject him. So he, he's he's calling himself the son. There. He's uh, also called uh, the son of David. Uh, again, in in twenty two forty two to forty five, that's where uh, Jesus asks the the, the um, le- religious leaders if the son of da- if David calls Messiah son. Or if, if David calls Messiah Lord, how can he be his son? The implication is, is Messiah had to be alive before David, which implication, he's God. Uh, he's called the son of Abraham, son of man a number of times. Uh, he's called Jesus uh, many times, the Christ, and the king of the Jews or Israel. We also see the, uh, the spirit... Uh, portrayed as God. We see him uh, uh, in a, a Trinitarian form in 316 during Jesus' baptism. You have the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Son being baptized. And then you have the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. Uh, in 12, 31 to 32, we see the Spirit of God being juxtaposed or contrasted with Beelzebub, the, the prince of demons. And, and the Spirit of God is the agent of by which Jesus is casting out the demons, and then in twenty-eight nineteen, with the Great Commission, again you see this Trinitarian formula: uh, baptize, teach, and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you see each person of the Trinity being attributed deity in Matthew. Uh, second theme is the kingdom. Now, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, the kingdom is a very, very prevalent theme. And it was important to the Jews who were waiting for the son of David to be revealed to restore the throne and to deliver and save and restore Israel and kick those dirty Romans out. Now, as you read the last half of the Old Testament, as the kingdom is politically and um, uh, uh, geographically, the kingdom is declining, you're wondering when is the kingdom going to show up? Uh, so Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times and when the first time he uses it in 32 he just he just says it he just runs with it or he just lays it out and expects his audience to run with it repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Doesn't doesn't explain it doesn't feel he has to. His audience probably already has a context in which to, to interpret that. Uh, he also uses... So he uses that phrase 32 times. He uses the phrase, the kingdom of God, four times. And uh, one interesting place is in nineteen twenty three twenty four. 24 the parable of the rich man um, not being able to enter the kingdom. He says, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he... Repeat, he parallels his thought and says that again it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of god so they're they're used synonymously Uh, 15 times he just refers to the kingdom and then he refers to himself as the king eight times Uh, or rather he is referred to um, as the king eight times beginning in 2-2 when the magi show up you know again Speaking to Herod, who has been appointed king by Rome, the Magi show up. Hey, where's he who? Uh, hey, Herod, you you know you who were uh, given this job, where's he who was born king of the Jews? And then 21:5 um, quoting Zechariah 9:9, triumphal entry. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. And then as the book concludes. Four times in chapter twenty seven, we have Pilate calling him king. We have the soldiers as they're mocking him, calling him king. We have the sign that was hung over him on the cross, which says Jesus, King of Well, I better Jesus, King of the Jews. Actually, no, Hebrew was from right to left. Or no, it would have been Greek. Whatever. And then the forty two, you have the chief priests together with the scribes and the uh, and the people and the elders of the people so you have you have Israel represented in totality uh, 27 41 and 42 says that uh, the people were saying he saved others but he can't save himself he's the king let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him so you have four times in mockery, in disbelief, he is nevertheless called the king. All right, so the, another theme is the Old Testament. He writes numerous times uh, that, it, that the, the scriptures or the Old Testament or the, the covenant had to be fulfilled. What was written had to be fulfilled uh, in 1.22, we see, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Twelve times. Uh, nine times he, he writes, uh, it is written. Uh, how did, the, how did um, Herod's assistants know where Jesus would be born? Well, 2.5. They said to Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. He uses the scriptures four times. Jesus said to the, to the scribes, did you, have you not read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And the law, sometimes the law and the prophets, uh, he uses seven times. Um, and it, at near the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill uh, and not one jot or tittle Not the smallest stroke or letter Will pass from the law Until all is accomplished So Matthew has a very high standard A very high view of scripture Weren't, weren't we talking the other, uh, yesterday About uh, how the New Testament writers v- Viewed prophecy and the authority Of the word of God right So even in the New Testament Very high very exalted view Of scripture all right, the the teachings of Jesus um, another another way to outline the book um, is to outline it according to the the major discourses because really except for uh, chapters eight and nine where he's doing miracles he does uh, he, it's the greatest concentration of miracles in the book and basically the passion narrative at, at the end of the book uh, virtually Every other part of Matthew is, um, well, and and the birth narrative, rather. But uh, most of the book is, are these large discourses where Jesus is inter- is interacting with people. Uh, 5 to 7 is the uh, Sermon on the Mount. 10, uh, ten to, to 12, he's speaking to his disciples and the scribes. Uh, 13 to, to 17 are the parables of the kingdom. Um, uh, I can't remember what's in 18 to twenty but 24 and 25 is the, uh, the all of it discourse. So uh, we see Jesus teaching. We see him teaching a lot. We see the people and even Jesus's enemies attributing him to being a teacher. And he's one who teaches with authority. Remember, as the, as the Sermon on the Mount concludes, the people were amazed because he was teaching with authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. And so if you're going to have teaching, you need to have those who receive the teaching. These are the disciples. 73 times Matthew uses the word disciple, and three times he uses the word as a verb. Uh, one of the most prominent ones is um, really the it, – it's the, it's the, it's the, the, the thrust – verb of the Great Commission. The, the main verb is not go. That, that's what we think it is often in, in evangelicalism, but the main verb is to make disciples, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We see the Jewish leaders, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees which, and the Pharisees, which we looked at last week being a major theme, uh, in addition to the people. You know, in most of the other Gospels, the the Jewish leaders, they're kind of sporadically mentioned. Matthew has entire discourses with them, predominantly uh, chapters 11 and 12. And uh, there's the big woe, you know, woe, scribes and Pharisees, woe in, uh, I think, chapter 23. Uh, we also see the people. Uh, In chapter 11, 7 through 19, we see the people wavering. Uh, And again, uh, in 27, 25, the people of the land, alongside the scribes, alongside the the chief priests and the Pharisees, the people rejected uh, Christ. And 27, 25 says, and the people said, his blood shall be upon us and our children. Remember when? Pilate says, hey, you can have Barabbas, but who, you know, who, who am I going to release to you? And the people want uh, – I'm sorry. Pilate says, you can ha- I'll release Jesus to you. And the people say, no, give us Barabbas. As for this man, his blood be on us and our children. The reason why I say that is um, there have been some who say, you know, it wasn't the people that rejected Jesus. It was just the aristocrats. It was just the priests. It was just the Pharisees. Matthew demonstrates – The totality of the nation, as a whole, rejected their Messiah. We see the end times or the last times uh, in 3:7. John the Baptist uh, asks the the scribes, "Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" Uh, Five times Jesus refers to the judgment to come. Um, one that really stuck out is uh, near the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Possibly one of the things that shocked the people is when Jesus, ha- Jesus has the audacity to say, if you don't hear my words and act on them, you are like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. If, meaning if you, don't, if you don't hear and receive what I say, judgment is coming. He also talked about the the age to come, and uh, I really like the, the 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 last line of of Matthew. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So so in talking about the epoch or the era or the the last times, most of the time it's judgment; it's a sobering consideration. But the last one Matthew uses it's actually a comfort to those who believe in Messiah. Uh, also, chapter 24, the uh, the day of the Lord. All right, so what's, what's the purpose of the book? What does, what does Matthew want the reader to walk away with? He wants you to know that the Jesus of Nazareth was and is the promised Messiah, and he is Israel's king. And even though even though the people rejected him, even though the, the scribes, the, the chief priests, the religious leaders, those in power, and the people rejected him, he will still establish his kingdom in the future. You know, the, 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 the church is not just plan B. The kingdom is still, you know, if you, the, the kingdom as you've been expecting it from reading the Old Testament, the kingdom is still coming. That's what Matthew wants you to know. All right, so interpret. When it says Israel's past rejection, is it referring to Old Testament, like, personal rejection? No, it. What? No, you have to remember, by by the. by the time that they are reading Matthew, um, it's about fifteen to fifteen years ish after Jesus has died. So, so at the moment, at the time that they're reading this, and especially you know in the years following that point, uh, the, the the rejection of, of Jesus was a past event. So you know Matthew he began with Jesus' ancestry. Uh, with, with his ancest- uh, ancestral records, demonstrating Jesus has the credentials to be the son of David, the king of Israel. He's, he is the heir of the kingly line. He dem- uh, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus has fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. Jesus did all the things Messiah was supposed to do according to the scriptures. And he is called the king... Ironically, by Gentiles, he is called King at the beginning, you know, by the Magi, and at the end by Pilate, by the soldiers, by um, well, the, the people and scribes and everything, um, and the and the sign. So he, he's he is called King at the sandwich, uh, at at the bread part of the sandwich. All right, so uh, I think we we could probably get two interpretive questions in uh the first is the Nazarenian prophecy in uh chapter 2 verse 23 the text says that that uh after coming back from egypt you know that joseph had heard that herod had died joseph brings mary and and the the baby the young boy jesus back from egypt and they 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 don't go back to bethlehem uh they they uh settle down in Nazareth and then Matthew says and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets he shall be called a Nazarene now I will give whoever can find the Old Testament uh, scripture that says this I will give you a hundred dollars who wants to take up the challenge I'm not joking no no one wants a hundred bucks okay I'll if you can guess where it is in the Old Testament I'll give you uh I'll, t- I'll treat you out to lunch no one wants to take me up are you are you just are you suspicious of me now okay okay so the reason why this is an interpretive problem is because there there is no prophecy that states Messiah shall be called a Nazarene and so do you see how this could be uh, – th- this is an interpretive problem because Matthew says this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And you know, a student of the, of the Old Testament, they're like, wait, um, where, chapter and verse, please? I don't, I don't recognize this prophecy. And so there's three main interpretations. You know, we, we have to reconcile this because the, the scripture cannot be broken, right? We, we have a high view of scripture. Uh, so how can this make sense and God not be found a liar the the three main interpretation uh, interpretations is that this means that Jesus was a Nazarite according to the prophecies uh, because Nazarite kind of sounds like Nazarene and so uh, another one is that uh, because the the Hebrew word for branch which is an Old Testament, uh, Title for Messiah uh, is Netzer. That kind of you know it could be Netzerite. Um Or the third option is it's not it's referring to the fact that the prophets, um, not one particular prophet, but the prophets as a whole. One of their themes, one of their developments, was that they was, was that that was that Messiah would come from a humble, obscure. Um, unrespected, despised background. Now, if it, uh, you could probably put two and two together and and figure out that because I talked a little bit more about the third one, that's probably that, that that's one I choose. Uh, the reason why it can't be the first one is the scripture does not say, scripture gives no indication that Jesus lived as a Nazarite. He he never took the Nazarite vow. Uh, He never uh, kept his. It doesn't state he kept his beard from being cut, or from and then cutting his hair and giving it to the priest as an offering, which is what the Nazarites were supposed to do. Also, Nazarites were not supposed to uh, eat and drink certain things like wine or grapes or figs. And uh, one of the accusations against Jesus was that he came eating and drinking and, and was a glutton. So. Even his enemies admit Jesus drank, so he can't be a Nazarite. As far as this referring to Jesus being the branch, D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, says this could be a discreet allusion to the branch imagery. I think he's going out on a limb there, right? because it's very discreet. It's very discreet. I think the fact that uh, that the prophet. And what's interesting is, up until this point, when you when you see 122 you 2:5, 2:15, 2:17, Matthew writes, and this was this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet. This this is what the prophet says. This is what the prophet wrote. And then you get to this one, and it says this is what this was to fulfill what was written f- through the prophets. So four times before this, you have. The prophet, singular. So one, you know, one prophet in mind, most likely one passage in mind. But then you get to spoken through the prophets, plural. Is this is probably, I think, a, a reference to a general theme of the prophets, in that Messiah would come from humble origins. And we know uh, we know Nazareth was, was was humble origins in the minds of the Jews. Uh, in John one forty seven, uh, Peter, um, Peter and Andrew and John, I think, they come find Nathaniel and they say, hey, "We found Jesus, Je- uh, we found Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth." And Nathaniel says, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" You know, um, you know in my hometown we, we, we had a, can anything come out of Vallejo? Uh, I, I'm not quite sure what the what the place is around here, but that you would think it's like, you know you don't really want to go there. That's how people felt about Nazareth. Uh, it was It was a nothing place. so does that does that make sense? It's not referring to a particu- one particular prophecy, it's referring to uh, the prophet said. He's not going to be respectable. He's not you know, there there was no comeliness about him that, that we would bow down and worship him. That's it was a theme of the of the prophets. And I got like a just a minute or two. Let me just say uh that the Olivet discourse uh there the All of it discourse is uh where Jesus is talking about the last times. Uh and there are two uh, there, there's, there's this uh, cataclysmic climactic uh, description of judgment that he goes into detail and I, I don't have time to get into that but um, there are two chief ways to interpret this text one is the preterist view which views Matthew 24 and 25 and what would also be spoken of in Revelation the preterist view says all that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. What what happened in 70 A.D. Yeah, and Jerusalem, and most of the Jews. Uh, it was there. Josephus says there was over a million Jews as casualties. Uh, the preterist view says Matthew that the cataclysmic description of Matthew 24 and 25, um, and that would uh, again that would revelation would be lumped in with that. All that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Uh, the futuristic view uh, views that the fulfillment of Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation is yet to be fulfilled. And um, what I where I land is the futuristic view because Matthew 24 begins with, with the disciples asking. Uh, Jesus comments. He actually initiates the conversation. He says, you see this temple? See how great it is? I tell you, uh, not one stone will be left unturned. Now, the disciples, to them, Jerusalem is impregnable, the temple is indestructible, and so for the temple to be—never ne- mind that Jerusalem ar- had already been destroyed like four times uh, in the history of the Jews. That's that—that's a moot point. But at this point, it, you can't touch it, you can't touch Jerusalem or the temple. So if the temple gets destroyed, that's that's the end of the world, baby. That's the world, you know. So they automatically ask, uh, uh, when is that going to happen? And then they, also, they ask a second question, and when will, when will be the sign of your coming? So the disciples ask two questions, and I think the futuristic view interprets this as Jesus skipping the first question altogether, and then uh, the discourse is answering the second question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? And all those cataclysmic events are describing the, what will happen before Jesus comes back. And so I, I see him, I see him not answering the first question as a way to explain that discrepancy. Uh, I got, I really don't have any time for Q and A, so I apologize for that. Um, but uh, again, I. I uh, strongly admonish listen to the uh, listen to the audio Bible uh, listen it, it, it is convenient and it's easy and it's free um, so thank you again for this morning I'll, I'll, I'll pray as we close Heavenly Father thank you for this time that we can look over your book which so prominently portrays Jesus the King. We thank you that he has risen from the dead and that he has promised that he will be with us until the very end of the age. We pray with with the rest of the saints, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.